Hey there, NASCAR fans. Have you got your copy of the latest edition of NASCAR Pole Position Print Magazine? If not, there's no better time than now to subscribe at PolePositionMag.com. NASCAR Pole Position is the only print magazine covering NASCAR. Officially licensed by NASCAR, NASCAR Pole Position Magazine is published throughout the NASCAR season, and each edition is an instant collector's item, backed with great feature stories and photography. The magazine is even mailed to you in a poly bag for those who love to collect NASCAR memorabilia. At PolePositionMag.com, you can even find past issues available to purchase. Get your subscription to NASCAR Pole Position and get great NASCAR content delivered straight to your mailbox throughout the season. Learn more at PolePositionMag.com. That's PolePositionMag.com. Hey y'all, Rick Houston here, and I want to tell you about my new show, the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast. I've partnered up with the state of North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources to help uncover the history behind moonshining mountain boys, professional wheelmen, and the backwoods and city lights of the Tar Heel State. In the first episode, I sat down with Winston Kelly at the NASCAR Hall of Fame for a little behind-the-scenes gossip about Junior Johnson's engineering skills. He's got two things in his hand, pipe wrench and channel lock pliers, and they weren't new. They yeah. had been, they had been yeah. around the block a time or two. What's the first deal they built, I bet? No, no, you know, you could, I think they were, they had, the, the pliers had been red before, but paint had worn off. And in the second episode, I talked to a professional hillbilly, a.k.a. Dr. Daniel Pierce of UNC Asheville, to find out the real history of moonshiners and their battles with the revenuers. He wrote about one of his experience of trying to chase down this uh, this bootlegger and this this souped-up car, and he, he complained that the government gave him these piece-of-crap, cheapo cars and that, that were really no match, but he thought he was doing pretty good, and then the guy just hits it and just takes off and practically disappears. But then the guy makes a bootleg turn uh, and comes back towards him. And as he said, it was a game of chicken, and I was the chicken. And so he ran off the road. And actually, he was the guy who, who caught Junior Johnson at his daddy's steal when Junior got tangled up in a, in a barbed wire fence. So check out the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast, available on YouTube, DailyDownForce.com, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And be sure to check out my regular show on NASCAR history, the Scene Vault Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Please truck, go ahead and roll.
Hello, my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Moneyline Sane Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history. Presented by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's racing showplace. He'd get to the racetrack, he'd look at the racetrack, he'd go and he'd race. Larry wanted every little detail, and it was kind of like oil and water. Everything was to a T. If anything was wrong, if there was a little grease spot on the windshield, had to fix it. Um, he hated change. Me and Chocolate and Will and David went to the hospital. And when we got there, the preacher said he didn't make it. It was a year of hell because we couldn't get away from it. Today, NASCAR and all of us associated in any way with NASCAR forget its past. That's the day we don't have any future. Hello, everyone. I'm Steve Wade. And my name is Rick Houston. And welcome to the Moneyline Scene Vault podcast presented by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's racing showplace, and a track that truly cares about NASCAR history. Now, Steve, I know you're not necessarily into details. Judging from your writing all those years, you're not really into details. This podcast is not getting off to a very good start. <laughs> did you notice anything different about the intro this week? Yes, I sure did. <laughs> you know, all those races that we've covered along the way with the long names, we've welcomed Moneyline into the same vault fold, and we appreciate that help so much. But at this point, Steve, it is just a one-month trial. So I know, as hard as this is for you, Steve, please behave yourself. So maybe we can get Moneyline to stay on board. <laughs> and I know the gravity of what I'm asking, but can you please try to behave yourself? Oh, Rick, I'll give it the good old college try. I really will. For Moneyline. Steve, also, we are recording this a little bit later on Sunday afternoon than we usually do. Because Jeannie and I literally just came in from Darlington. And yes, we had dinner Friday at Raceway Grill. I'd be ashamed of that if you didn't. <laughs> and then I introduced Jeannie to the Redbone Alley restaurant where we had not only lunch yesterday, but also dinner. She enjoyed Redbone Alley. That's such a good place. It's such a Darlington institution. Absolutely. Another target for everybody who was down there for the races. I spoke yesterday and this morning at the Raceway Ministries Chapel Services just outside the racetrack, and it's kind of cool how that took place. Keith Garrison listens to our show, and he reached out to me a few months ago, and he asked me if I would be interested in speaking at Darlington this weekend. This weekend, I also met Roger Marsh, who is the national coordinator Raceway Ministries. Now, if you're out there and you're wondering what the difference is between Raceway Ministries and Motor Racing Outreach, this is no official explanation. So don't go shooting the messenger, which church folk are sometimes pretty good at doing. <laughs> but, I'm sorry. Did I say that out loud? <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> and you're asking me to behave? <laughs> well, you know, you got a point there. <laughs> but here's the deal. In a nutshell, Motor Racing Outreach pretty much takes care of everybody in the garage and Raceway Ministries handles everything else. 
Well, the big question now, Rick, is did you take up a collection? And if so, how much did you get? Come on now. <laughs> <laughs> so, Steve, I know you will find this hard to believe, but even though I was the guest speaker at the chapel services, I found somebody to aggravate. <laughs> I'm not surprised by that at all. <laughs> I would have said that to you or died. <laughs> Alan Huffman is the chaplain for the Southeast Super Truck Series, and he also races in the Southeast Super Truck Series. So that tells me that Alan will lay a fender to you. He'll turn you around in order to gain a spot on the racetrack but you can't get mad at him because then he's going to pray for you after you get spun out. Pretty good combination when you stop and think about it. You can do what you want that way. Steve, you know what? We better talk about this episode before I get myself into any more trouble. I think that's the right thing to do. Steve, this week in our first segment in the third and final installment of our interview with Danny Lawrence, he discusses the very precise details of what Dale Earnhardt expected in the cockpit of his race car the three sides to Dale's personality and the 2001 Daytona 500. Then in our second segment, we're going to go back to the June 18th, 1982 issue of Grand National Scene. Tim Richmond wins the first race of his Winston Cup career at Riverside in a top five that was filled with all-time NASCAR greats. As was so often the case for J.D. Stacy, it was a tumultuous week for the team owner slash team sponsor after he unceremoniously ended his supportive Dave Marcus. You wrote about going skinny dipping. Now, wait a minute. <laughs> I did not. Steve, listen. What? Don't shoot the messenger. <laughs> it's right. right there in the newspaper. <laughs> I want to see what this is all about. You wrote about going skinny dipping. Gene Granger rips into Buddy Baker. The France family, Warner Hodgden, and Bruton Smith all go after Darlington Raceway. Raymock Racing owners Butch Mock and Bob Rahilly both deny rumors of dirty money funding their team. And Diegard Racing co-founder Mike D. Prospero makes it back to the track after a devastating car crash several years earlier. Well, his was quite the story, Rick. This week, we got some help from Bobby Tidwell. So, Bobby, thank you. Thank you very much. Now... With the addition of Moneyline to the Scene Vault podcast, I do want to say this. The Scene Vault podcast is, for better or worse, my primary source of income. Our Patreon support is absolutely essential in making this podcast happen on a week-in and week-out, monthly and yearly basis. So please stick around. Don't go anywhere. All right? Support us on Patreon, and I will be posting a special gift this week for our Patreon supporters exclusively in appreciation. And I will be doing that again in the near future. You can also show your support by grabbing a t-shirt or two from our online store. And don't forget the Sasquatch sale is still ongoing. And I have taken advantage of it, Rick. Tell them why. I can just imagine you entering the Sasquatch code with a great big old grin on your face. You're daggone right. I did. <laughs> <laughs> Enter the promo code Sasquatch for 25% off the Scene Vault Past Meets Present and Rick and Steve editions of the t-shirt. That's S-A-S-Q-U-A-T-C-H, and that'll be 25% off your order. 
You can also show your support with a five-star rating and a written review on whatever podcast platform you listen to us on. So again, patreon.com. That address is patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash the same vault podcast. Or if you would prefer to do a one-time show of support, you can do that via paypal.me slash the same vault podcast or venmo.com slash the same vault podcast. And as a reminder, this show is not affiliated in any way with American City Business Journal's owner of the same brand. So Andy stayed through 95. Then I guess David and Bobby. Yep. Did it uh, together. Kind of co-crew chief in 96. In 97, Larry Mack came in. Right. How big of an adjustment was that? So let's talk about David and Bobby first. So Bobby was RCR's first engineer. Bobby's really, really smart. And, uh, he was the first guy, I think, at RCR that had a computer. And we had this really? program, Edge yeah. program, to yeah. help you, yeah. you know, do and do and do. And so Richard's thought process was David was always a worker. David, nobody ever outworked. David worked hard. And you you pair an engineer with a hard worker, and then, you know, basically you have the best of both worlds. And... It just it just didn't work that good together, you know. A lot of a lot of the, you know, a lot of the communication and, and this and that, and it. Earnhardt's looking for a feel that that, you know, we just couldn't give him. So we had to, we had to put all of our eggs in one basket. So we go to Japan, and Richard cuts a deal with Larry, about coming being a crew chief. Larry was. He's a guy, he can tell you today, right now, what the weather was at Wilkesboro in 1996. <laughs> yeah. He yeah. he is a detailed guy. Yeah. And Earnhardt's more of a off-the-cuff guy. He don't, he, he, he wouldn't, he wouldn't do any studying. He didn't, he'd get to the racetrack, he'd look at the racetrack, he'd go and he'd race. Larry wanted every little detail. Yeah. And it was kind of like oil and water. And at that time, uh, that's about the time that Earnhardt's hands were starting to fall asleep. With then, because of the wreck at Talladega? Because of the wreck at Talladega, he had a, a pinched nerve in his neck. How bad was he hurt? Uh, bad. He was, he, he, he was tough. He never told anybody. He just felt like that it would, it would be okay. But later on, I could tell since I put him in the car, he had a hard time getting comfortable. He would he would do things. He'd move around a whole lot, and uh, so come to find out, you know, after about two years worth, he said, "Oh, my hands keep falling asleep, and I can't feel the steering wheel." And Doctor Charlie Branch ended up figuring out what the problem was. He fixed that. He actually was doing really good after that. You know, he, he felt like he was whole again. And, uh, you know, he, I, I can remember him saying, even when I drive, drive a tractor for any length of time, I get to where my, my hands go to sleep and I couldn't feel them. So that was a lot of what happened through the Larry years. 
and uh, you know, Earnhardt kept thinking it was going to get better, but it never did. He had that crazy episode at Darlington. What do you remember about that? So everything was normal until I mean he got and you put him in the car. Then. Yeah, put him in the car. He talked to us just fine and this and that, and uh, he goes out and basically runs in the wall. He's like basically passed out. And um, we were in panic mode. We had no backup plan. Dale Earnhardt was our driver. We had, and Richard says, go get Mike Dillon. Mike Dillon is standing on top of a motorhome with a beer in his hand. (laughs) And he said, I only took one. (laughs) Like, we need you. Mike's stuff was all there. And Mike had actually tested it for us at Darlington. And uh, you got Dale out of the car and, and, we didn't. We didn't know. It was. It was. It was a long time before before they really figured out what happened. But it basically just he had an episode, and uh, they what, what kind? I mean, so so he always told us he was abducted by aliens or yeah whatever, yeah. So story. so uh, he basically passed out for a few minutes. Yeah, uh, some kind of neuro neurological type deal and after that he i think he changed his diet he went through stress test and this and that and they said man you are fit as you can be and he i can remember he after that he would nobody did anything to him but people would bring stuff to the racetrack like like i made you this apple pie and he's like i'm not eating that uh i'm not drinking water that's not see i'm not you know after that it was he, he you know Nobody drugged him, but he was like he wasn't taking a chance on anything. Never bothered him again after that. But basically, he he don't remember what happened. He just went to sleep. So he had the surgery, two thousand. I think he was probably back. And you've talked about putting him in the car. What all did that entail? And how particular was he about what was in that car? Highly, highly, highly <laughs> particular. Okay, so. He always wore the open face helmet, and so you know he didn't wear any cool suits or this or that. But he had a hose that that he would put on his that we put that blew up towards his face. So back in the day, the open face helmet had the mic. The mic had to be just right. His he would take and he would work on his goggles. They had to be just tight enough, but not loose enough. He he took and he would fix them himself, and he'd clean them himself, and he'd wrap them back up in the tissue paper, put them in the box, and I always had to have a spare pair. The windshield had to be cleaned on the lower corner because they always looked across the corner. So we get in the car, he wanted two clean rags. He put one beside his right leg, one beside his left leg. Then he would put his earplugs in, he'd lick them, put them in, and then I have to, we tape, had a little bitty piece of tape because he couldn't stand them being on the back of his neck. Everything was just right. He would sit down, wiggle down in the seat, tighten his belts up. Steering wheel had to be exactly centered right. Shifter had to be just, I mean, he he had his little pet peeves. Didn't want the window net too tight or too loose. He wanted to be able to get out of the car. I mean, it was, everything was to a T. If anything was wrong, if there was a little grease spot on the windshield, had to fix it. Um, he hated change. When they told him he had to start wearing gloves, we were at Martinsville, and on one of the pit stops, he threw the gloves out the window, and they, 
NASCAR told him, you will wear – I mean, he didn't want to yeah. do that. When they told him, okay, we're mandating that everybody has a spotter, he's like, well, I'm not talking to my spotter. He can stand up there and be my spotter, but I don't want him to say nothing. I don't want him to even talk to me. It took a little while, and and, and Danny Culler, I believe, was his first spotter. But he he was set in his ways. He knew what he wanted, and, and that's the way he wanted it. It, it was – he had a plan. I mean, we get on the airplane. We'd go to eat. He would be like, okay, you sit here, you sit here, you sit here, you sit here. You eat this. Try this. Like, no, I don't want that. Try it. No, eat this. I mean, it was like – it was like yeah, he was he was demanding, like, come on, eat it. You know, it was – but he was also incredible to us. He was the ultimate team player. There was lots of times when he would come up and say – he would do it randomly – He'd come and say, here's $800. Don't tell nobody I give this to you. Y'all go out and eat tonight or whatever. And he would give it to Will one time, to me one time, to you know, to David one time. And uh, he would always say, we, 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 we're, you know, we're a team. It wasn't I. It was, it was always all of us. And then when stuff would go bad, and we lost to Alternator. We were leading Atlanta. Alternator went bad. And... Uh, Ended up having to change batteries. We were leading at the time. We ended up finishing like seventh. He came in and he's like, "Man, it happens." He said, "We'll figure it out together." And uh, it it was he understood that not everything was going to be perfect. Um, he was smart race car driver, incredible. I enjoy hearing stories like that about Dale because that's a side of Dale that I didn't get to see. I mean, when I came into the sport, my first full-time year. Well, I started with Scene in November of 94, right after he had clinched that seventh championship. Um, let's just say I didn't see that side of Dale. Right. Why did he have that shell? Was it just to protect himself from, you know, everybody trying to yet pull on him? What was that? So there was there were about three sides to Earnhardt. So first thing was – he was passionate and really soft. So the girl, her name's Wessa Miller. Yeah, that, yeah. That that gave him the penny. Yeah. Uh, Twenty years after, after the '98 race, she came to RCR, and uh, chocolate gave her a tour. And she wasn't supposed to live. She was a Make a Wish yeah. child, and they 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 had told her family that she's. Not going to live long. She had, um, I'm not sure what 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 she has, but she's still she's doing well today. Well, so Chocolate gives him a tour, and he goes out, and uh, she's got a little three sticker in the back of her van. And Chocolate said, "Hey, that that's pretty cool. If you still have that," and he, and he says, "That's the that's the van Dale bought us." And Chocolate's like, "What?" And uh, after we won the 500. Dale sent a note and said, do y'all need anything? And like, no, we don't need anything. Well, he had figured out somehow that they didn't have a handicapped vehicle. So Dale ordered one and bought it for them, and they still have it today. And, you know, it's his whole thing was, is I'm going to give you this van, but I don't want nobody knows that I did it for you. He did a lot of stuff. I know he bought a 
pews for the Baptist church there in Kannapolis, and he's like, don't you tell anybody I did this, and, you know, it's not me. He, he, My grandfather got sick, and we were at Pocono, and he flew me home to make sure he was okay and then flew me back. And he was like, that's just between us. He didn't want people to know that he had a soft spot. Why? I don't know. He wanted that tough image. He okay. wanted to, yeah. you know, he wanted to be the hard ass or whatever you yeah. want to call it. But he he did have. Um, he was good to people. I can just tell you that. All right. So that was one side. What are the other two sides? So, so I know the I know the last side. Yeah. Okay. okay. <laughs> yeah. So me and you talked about the indie test. So in yeah. in. I believe the year was 96, and I think it was April. Uh, when we were at Daytona, Richard said, we're going to do this top-secret test that nobody knows about. It was us, Rusty, and Morgan McClure, the four-car. Now, is this before the first? This was this was secret test. Okay, this was a secret test? Before the tire test. In 92? Yes. Okay, yeah, all right, yeah, okay, yeah. All right. 92. Yeah. And uh, so we go to Indy. Nobody knows we're there, and A.J. Foyt's there. And we go, and Dale, I still have the spark plugs in my toolbox. The very, very first. So we go, and we run, and Earnhardt's like, man, this is incredible. Like, nobody was there. It was a closed test, and we just, we went, they took three cars there, just went to see everything, how it would get, what gear you needed to run, what tire they needed to run, this and that, because... They were going to have a big – they were getting ready to announce a big test coming up, a tire test coming up. So we ran the first laps, and it, we got to go through the museum with Earnhardt and this and that, and, and we got to know A.J. Foyt really well. So then we come back to the to the first tire test, and um, Earnhardt's like, I've done all this. You know, I'm really not – you know, he just kind of riding around. Well, then A.J. Foyt's like, Dale, I want to drive your car. He's like, you're too big to drive my. I want to drive. I'll get in there. Yeah. So Earnhardt's like, all right, AJ's going to drive, but I'm going to go run a few laps. So he went out and ran like 15 or 20 laps. And he's like, when y'all put him in this, you, he's getting these old tires. He is he is not because Indy was the first place that we'd went where we had uh, to be able to tell where you were on the racetrack, segment times. We'd never seen that before. But they have, they, they have, their scoring monitor is so sophisticated. Yeah. They could tell you where you entered the corner, how you were through each section. They could tell you in the middle of the corner and this and that. And uh, that we were eating that data up because we could, of course, we were looking at, okay, we run you know this fast down the straightaway and we're this fast through the corner. And when you put new tires on, well, Dale did not want A.J. Foyt running faster than he did. <laughs> so... He's like, only let him run four or five laps. AJ got in the car. He went out and he didn't run, and, and he was like, I can say I drove Dale Earnhardt, which I thought that was really awesome. AJ won the 72 Daytona 5. He'd won in everything he'd ever been in and this and that. And uh, so then he comes in, and Earnhardt, get out of my car. Then Earnhardt wanted to drive, and he's like, put me four stickers on here. You know? <laughs> so he, he had to make sure everybody yeah. knew that AJ Foyt didn't run faster yeah. than him. AJ invited us back to that year to come to the qualifying at the Indy 500. And so um, 
we ended up we ended up going, and uh, it's so funny is we come in and AJ's like, y'all come over here. I want to show you something because they just had a transaxle I- issue. He goes over to the solvent tank and he's like, look at this gear. And well, I've never seen anything like this before. I mean, it was straight cut gears and this, you know, we were used to old, you know, standard transmission. He's like, I ain't, I'm not believing that this thing looks like, you know, it was all burnt up and this and that. And Earnhardt's looking at it with him. I'm sitting there going like, AJ Foyt and Dale Earnhardt in a cleaning vat looking at, you know, how amazing is this? And it was so funny that both of them went and they were looking out the door because there's people everywhere and they're, neither one of them are wanting to go out because they're going to be yeah. swarmed. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm sitting there thinking how different our life is for these two famous race car drivers. But I can never re- forget Earnhardt saying, that AJ, he's old school, man. He's still he's still wanting to set these indie cars up with strings and stuff, and everybody else is backing in. They were yeah. using lasers and everything yeah. else, but those two guys were so much alike. Or you know, it's 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 crazy. Um, AJ became our friend since then, and and um, we love him. You know, he he's actually absolutely incredible, and and even today when we see him, he still talks about those times he drove yeah. Dale Earnhardt's car. All right, so we've talked about everything up until this, and you put Dale Earnhardt in his car, 2001 Daytona 500. What do you remember about that? He said, he used to say this all the time, he said, hey, let's get our picture made, and that was the first time ever done a fist bump. He's like, actually, he was clean. He wanted to be clean all the time. He didn't, he, he wouldn't, I can remember a time when we were in the truck. I know I'm getting off course, but I think the people should hear this. Yeah. yeah. So they uh, opened the refrigerator up, and there was a grease print on the cheese. <laughs> and he took the whole cheese thing and threw it in the trash can, and Will in and said, hey, there's nothing wrong with that. So <laughs> Will took the piece of cheese and ate it right yeah. in front of him. And yeah. Earnhardt's like, Will, you are nasty. Will did it as a joke. Yeah. Like, you are nasty, nasty. <laughs> you got your greasy handprints all over the food. But So Dale like, Earnhardt was a germaphobe. He was. He, yes, he yeah. did not. He did really? not. And, and you, know, as a, you know, as we talked earlier, People would bring him all kind, bake yeah. him cookies. Bake. Oh yeah, yeah. We got to eat all because he's like, I'm not eating that stuff. I'm not. I don't know where what her kitchen looks like <laughs> or what. Y'all can have it, and we really? never got we we never we never got sick off any of it. But he's like, you just don't know about people. But yes, yes, yes. He 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 was he was very very clean person. But so so when we put him in the car, you know. We did a little fist bump thing. It was like, let's get our picture made. And uh, went through my, my normal little thing. And, and uh, you know, he was so kind of abrasive on the outside, but so genuine and so, so kind-hearted on the inside. There was there, there was three Dales. It's, it's uh, pretty amazing that, you know, that he kept all this – that his kindness, he kept it a secret through the years. So putting him in the car, um, was it just another race that day? Or it was a Daytona 500. I mean, there's people every, everywhere around us, you know. And and one thing about putting him in the car, every time you put him in the car, you felt like you were going to win the race. He had that, he had that confidence. I mean, he he sat lower in the car. You know, he was relaxed. 
he had a deal going on um, to where his heart rate actually slowed down whenever yeah. he got pressure on him. And we were, I believe it was Indy, where they, they were studying the drivers, and they went and checked Dale's right before the race. They checked Dale's. His heart rate was crazy. It was it was like 51 beats a minute, and they went yeah. and checked Jeff Gordon's, and his was like uh, yeah. 112 or something. Yeah. And it was like he was cool under pressure. He, you know, he he didn't let things get to him, you know, and and you know he would he would sit there and say stuff like, "Just get me close," and he did it every single time. I mean, it was his ability was amazing. That that thing that I don't like is is that about Dale Earnhardt is perceived now. A lot of people think we well, wrecked everybody. To win races, and that that's that's not true. I mean, he 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 ran road course races. He we won you know speedway races. He, I mean, he you know he did he did a lot a lot a lot of uh, winning in all different kinds of short track speedways. This and that. Um, he he loved to go fast and he loved to win. That's that's all he wanted to do was win, win, win. It's all about winning races. What do you remember about the rest of the day? Uh, I remember. So we didn't think the wreck was no big deal. And then all of a sudden they said, Richard's on his way to the hospital. It's not good. So me and Chocolate and Will and David went to the hospital. And when we got there, the preacher said, he didn't make it. And it's like, what do you mean he didn't make it? He didn't make it. And so I remember we went to the plane, and we're sitting on the plane, and we don't know what to do. We're all in shock. And it's like, I'm sitting there thinking, how are we going to survive this? How are, how are we, we going to make it through this? And uh, we're waiting on Richard, and finally... Richard sent a note that I'm not leaving. Y'all go and take tomorrow off and then get everything ready to go to Rockingham. And there were so many, I mean, we were, we were still, we were, you know, it, it was, we didn't have no direction, no, no nothing. And, uh, Richard had a lot on him. I mean, it, it was, it was big. And I can remember that um, a lot of Richard's friends came, and uh, he got he he got surrounded by a whole whole lot of his friends that that took care of him. And then all of a sudden, he's like, "Dale would want us to race." So we're painting the car white. We're you know we're going to change it twenty nine. You know, and we we. Back then, we never said this, but back then we're like, okay, we're going. It's going to be that was the, I think that was the lowest number available. So we said, it's two point nine. It's close to three, but it's not three. <laughs> um, but we never, you know, we never talked about that. So, um, Richard came in, and it was so crazy. We were at the shop, which is a museum now, and I, I can remember people calling, wanting to wanting to do stuff. I mean, there's flowers everywhere. I mean, it's like, it, and you, you see things everywhere you go. And it was like, how are we going to make it through this? And then Richard got us all together and 
he said, Dale want us to race. Got to go on. We've talked, me and him talked about this. If this, if this were to ever happen. And so we didn't want to go to Rockingham, but it was, it was rough. It was bad. So you go to Atlanta and this kid pulls off a miracle. So Atlanta, um, we're getting ready to go to Atlanta and, and Richard comes in and says, Dale had won a bunch of races. Back then, when you win Atlanta, you got a ski boat. I mean, they had like, yeah, yeah. Uh, which Richard, I think Richard still has three of them and <laughs> Teresa still has yeah. two or three yeah. of them. And uh, Richard goes, We're going to take Dale's car. And we were all like, That's Dale's favorite car. We don't want, we just yeah. don't take Dale's car. And, and Richard's like, Nope, we're going to take Dale's car. And we all kind of kicked and screamed about not wanting to take. Dale's, you know, that was, but Richard was right. If we wouldn't have took that car, Harvick wouldn't have, we, you know, we basically knew that car was good for Atlanta and this and that. And, uh, the, the, the thing is, is that, okay, that, that was the first step of our healing process. Uh, we could still win without Dale Earnhardt and, you know, even you know that year, everywhere you'd go, there would be special stuff during three. You know, and and people asking questions and this and that. I mean, it just kept everywhere we went. I mean, it was a it was a year of hell because we couldn't get away from it. It was a year of hell, um, with all the controversy and everything that had happened in the year two thousand. Was there ever a point in there where you just wanted to walk away and be done with this thing? With, yeah, be yeah. Done with NASCAR. That's that's why, at the end of two thousand one, I stepped down from being chief engine builder because I came from. It's, it's not Kevin's fault, but I came from. Kevin got thrown in there and did us a hell of a job. Dale was our friend also, and he uh, he was the best teammate you could ever have. He took care of us. He never disrespected us, and we wanted to work really hard for him because he treated us like like we were family. Um, so it was it was a culture shock, and you know, it's losing a family member. It's 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 like he's never going to be back here. He's never going to you know. We're never going to see him again. And, and it was some of those days, uh, you know, you were sitting there racing and, and things would bring back, you know, you, you see things that would yeah. bring back memories of how it was before. I mean, it was before Dale and after Dale. And it, it was, you know, he was the best race car driver ever. And didn't get a chance to finish what we started. We felt like him having his neck fixed. You know, he was running those races. He, you know, he was running, he was doing stuff he'd never done before. He was running, you know, the 24-hour race and doing yeah. all this stuff and running really good. And, and we felt like we were finally going to have another shot because he's feeling good again. I mean, he had told us, well, we're going to have something for him. We were better prepared. We had more cars than we'd ever had. We'd made progress with our engines and this and that. I mean, everything was lining up for, you know, to be a, a wonderful year. And then the very first race, I mean, it was, it was rough. 
This episode is sponsored by Moneyline, the all-in-one personal finance app designed to help you take control of your money. As you're putting a wrap on your summer plans, prepping your next tailgate, or just looking to upgrade some things around the house, with the Moneyline app, you're one step closer to getting your financial future on the right path. With Moneyline, you can borrow, save, invest, and earn money all in one place. Moneyline has been part of the racing community for years and is an official partner of 2311 Racing. Make sure to look out for the number 45 Moneyline Toyota Camry TRD on the track this weekend in Kansas as Tyler Reddick makes his push to advance to the round of 12 in the NASCAR playoffs. At every turn, Moneyline is helping you set the foundation for a strong financial future. Make sure to follow Moneyline on social media and download the Moneyline app today. Visit moneyline.com slash hotpass for more information. This segment is brought to our listeners by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's racing show place. Danny Lawrence talked about how particular Dale Earnhardt was about the cockpit of his race car. It had to be just right. And Steve, if anybody on that crew would know, it would be Danny because Danny put Dale in his car every race. So he was right there as Dale was getting strapped in and ready to go. And he was the first man to hear if everything was okay in that cockpit or it wasn't okay in that cockpit. And Danny also talked about how badly Dale hated change. He didn't want gloves. And when NASCAR mandated those, he would throw them out on pit road. (laughs) (laughs) He didn't want to be distracted by a spotter. And when he was told that he had to have one, he was like, all right, fine but I ain't talking to him (laughs) and I don't want him talking to me. (laughs) And Steve, we all know about the seat and we all know about the open face helmet and the Hans device and how dead set he was against all that. And Steve, that kind of thing seemed to be in Dale's DNA. How much of that was because Dale thought, Hey, I'm Dale freaking Arnhart. It ain't nobody going to tell me what to do. And how much of it was simply due to the fact that what he had worked for him and because he had walked away from some crazy crashes over the years, why fix it if it ain't broke? Well, it wasn't because he thought it was really something special. Tough freaking Dale Earnhardt, as you said. No, that was the way he raced. That was the DNA about him. It had worked for him. His style, his mannerisms, his preferences had all worked up until that point. So why change anything? That's precisely how he felt. There were also, according to Danny, three sides to Dale Earnhardt. There was the kind and gentle-hearted Dale that he didn't want anybody to know about. And that's, we talked about that last week. We talked about the guy who would fly Danny from, I believe it was Pocono back home because his grandfather was sick. We've talked about the church parking lots and the church pews that he would buy. We've talked about Wessa Miller and her van. Also, there was the a-hole side of Dale. (laughs) For lack of a better way of putting it, there was the a-hole side of Dale that anybody who wanted a piece of him got to see. But also, there was the uber-competitive Dale who became the intimidator. And this wasn't just during a race. Danny talked about how Dale 
did not want A.J. Foyt to go faster than him at Indy during a tire test. He made sure that the RCR car that A.J. was driving had on worn tires when A.J. went out and drove it. But when he came back in and Dale was supposed to get in the car, Dale made sure that they put on stickers. It didn't end there. It was at that Indy tire test where Dale and Rusty Wallace, they all but ran over each other (laughs) in the garage to be the first one on the racetrack. Now, what Danny's talking about there is the three sides of Dale Earnhardt that were totally separate. Hey, you saw the good side, the warm side, the giving side, if you were a friend. B, if you were not a friend, <laughs> you saw the a-hole. <laughs> Somebody didn't care about you at all or much at all. Ask Jeff Bodine that. And then C, you saw the competitive Earnhardt. The Earnhardt, the one to be the best, that wanted to win at all costs. That was the three prongs of Dale Earnhardt. I knew about those three sides of his personality. But here's one thing that I did not know about. Apparently, Dale Earnhardt was a clean freak slash germaphobe or something. Really? Now, I did not know that either. Dale was making himself a sandwich, and somebody had gotten a greasy fingerprint on the cheese wrapper where they'd been working on the car or something. They came in, made themselves a sandwich, and got grease on the wrapper. And Dale responded by throwing the whole thing (laughs) away. (laughs) I bet you Dale threw a lot of things away. You know those guys don't have a whole lot of clean hands when it comes to making sandwiches. We talked about the freebies that people threw at Dale Earnhardt and the team. And if somebody happened to bake them some cookies or cake or something, Dale wouldn't eat any of it. And it wasn't because of the diet or anything. He said, I don't know where that was cooked. (laughs) (laughs) Well, when you stop and think about it, that's just more for the team members to eat, right? So just imagine Dale Earnhardt and Sheldon Cooper together. (laughs) Again, listeners. Don't shoot the messenger. (laughs) (laughs) And finally, Danny did talk about losing Dale. And that is something that we have discussed many times on this show. We don't need to go back to it today. But the fact of the matter is that for those of us who care anything at all about NASCAR, the 2001 Daytona 500 is right there with the JFK assassination. It's right there with Elvis dying. And it was also, in a lot of ways, a lot like the reaction to 9-11. I will never forget listening to the radio the day after Dale lost his life that Monday and people were calling in to express their condolences and just absolutely breaking down in tears. Now, I will also say this, with the hindsight of a lot of years that have passed, there are a lot of people who seem to feel that NASCAR died the day that Dale Earnhardt died it's almost like they feel it's dishonoring Dale's memory to continue following the sport. When in fact, I very sincerely believe that it's just the opposite. Rick, let me tell you my experience with it. I could hardly believe that fans were turning away from NASCAR because Dale had died. But after some time, I found out, lo and behold, that was the truth. That was the absolute truth. They no longer had an interest in NASCAR because Dale was no longer racing in NASCAR. One thing changed, though. Many of those who left came back, and they told me the reason. 
and said, Dale's not here any longer, but his son is. I'm back to watch his son race. I'm going to support Dale Jr. And you can imagine how great that support has gotten over the years. You know how many times he was the most popular driver of NASCAR. And of course, now he's in the Hall of Fame. So as big as the loss of Dale was, his son, just by being his son, brought many fans back. Doesn't Dale Jr. have some sort of podcast? <laughs> I thought we weren't going to go there again. I seem to have heard of that somewhere. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I'll give you a hard time, but then I'll pray for you. So <laughs> Sounds like a truck racer, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Steve, here's the thing. What did Dale tell Richard Childress he wanted to happen if something ever happened to him? Dale said he wanted Richard Childress Racing to keep right on racing. So if you take that a step further, something did happen to Dale. And as a result of that, I believe that he absolutely would have wanted his fans to keep right on following the sport, right on supporting the sport, right on pulling for their favorite drivers, even though Dale was gone. Find another new driver, be it Dale Earnhardt Jr., be it whoever, but continue following the sport. And yes, the sport has changed. And yes, there are a lot of things different, but there's change in everything. If you don't like stage racing, I don't. If you don't like the playoffs, I don't. But I will say this, and I mean it. The competition today on the racetrack is as good as it's ever been. Yeah, I agree with you, Rick. Absolutely. And I think it's unfortunate that a lot of Dale's fans chose to ignore NASCAR after his death. But I believe that the numbers of people who are following NASCAR today has increased back to the point where, to me, it's just about as popular as it used to be. May not be popular in every way, shape, or form, but the people are back. Hey, race fans. John Dodson here from NASCAR Technical Institute. NASCAR Tech is open and enrolling, with classes starting every three to six weeks. In our 48-week automotive technology program, students learn everything from vehicle electronic technology to diagnostics and drivability. And as our exclusive educational provider for NASCAR, we offer a 15-week NASCAR elective, where students learn engines, fabrication, aerodynamics, pit crew essentials, and more. NASCAR Tech also offers 36-week welding and CNC machining training programs so you can choose the path that best fits your career goals. Ready to see how you can get started? Visit uti.edu slash NASCAR today. NASCAR Technical Institute prepares graduates to work as entry-level automotive service technicians. Some graduates who take NASCAR-specific electives also may have job opportunities in racing-related industries. NASCAR Tech is an educational institution and cannot guarantee employment or salary. This segment is brought to our listeners by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's racing show place, June 17th, 1982, issue of Grand National Scene. Listen to the top five finishers in the Budweiser 400 at Riverside International Raceway. Tim Richmond won the first race of his Winston Cup career in the event. Terry Labonte was second. Jeff Bodine was third. Dale Earnhardt took fourth. And Neil Bonnet rounded out the top five. 
That is a list of all-time greats. And yes, I believe that all of them should one day be in the NASCAR Hall of Fame. I think you're 100% right, Rick. Here's what you had to say in your race lead. Several of these drivers are considered to be among the future superstars of Winston Cup racing, and today they whipped a field of established regulars, including defending champion Daryl Waltrip, Bobby Allison, Richard Petty, and Benny Parsons, all retired with mechanical problems. Now, you have been doing this a long time. How many changes of the guard have you been through? There was Ben Hur to Red Byron. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I got your point. <laughs> yeah, I have been around a long time and seen many changes up the guard. Rick, in the 70s, you only had five or six guys that could win a race. And Richard won most of them. All of a sudden, Daryl Walter came along in the late 70s and led a brigade of new drivers who proceeded to change all the way up till about 1888. In 1888, another change came about when Benny Parsons, Cale Yarbrough, Buddy Baker all retired at once. Then we go into the 90s, and along comes Jeff Gordon. Now, Jeff Gordon is a catalyst of something entirely new in NASCAR. No longer. Do teams just swap out veteran drivers, trade them off? Every team on the garage here is looking for a young talent to match Jeff Gordon. And you can see what's happened ever since then. Uh, what you grinning about? Steve, did you just say that you were covering racing in 1888? No, I meant 1988. 1888, baby! <laughs> you covered the Pony Express! We had some good horses and wagon races. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Steve, normally I would edit something like that out, but unless you send me a really nice, healthy check, it's staying in there, baby. <laughs> well, guess what, Rick? When it comes to me sending you a check, it's staying in there, baby. <laughs> Tim said in your race late. <laughs> I can't even continue, man. <laughs> Tim said in your race lead, how do I feel? My initial feeling is let's go out and win the next one. I'm high on the win. I just don't know what to say. Tim was driving for JD Stacy at the time with Dell Emman as his crew chief. Tim said, we made three pit stops and changed four tires and put in a full tank of fuel quicker than some other teams changed two tires. We never touched the chassis. And we had tested our mileage earlier to see how far we could go on a tank of gas. Obviously, it paid off. Terry Labonte pitted for enough fuel to make it to the end on lap 87. And even though he was still on top of the leaderboard after the stop, Tim was on his way to the front. And he moved into the lead by passing Terry in turn nine on lap 90 of the 95 lap event. Terry said, I had to make my last stop. Tim could run three or four extra laps on a tank of gas, and there wasn't anything I could do about it. I had to stop because I would have run out of fuel within two laps. My car kept getting looser, and I knew Tim was closing. In the ninth turn, the car was so loose, I had to ride with it high in the turns. Tim closed up and later passed me. I'm disappointed, and I feel if we could have gotten one more caution and take on new tires, it might have made a difference. Jake Elder, Terry's crew chief, found what was ailing their car after the race. Jake said, 
the way the fuel tank was set in and the flow of the fuel restricted the tank to only 19 and a half gallons. I should have checked it, but it won't happen again. Terry ran three seconds slower after the last pit stop than before. The tires just flat wore out here. Speaking of J.D. Stacy, there had been some controversy involving his sponsorship of Dave Marcus. At Pocono on June 6th, Dave had given Bobby Allison a push to the pits when Bobby was running on vapors. Bobby came in, got gassed up, and then went out and won the race over Tim, who again was driving a car owned by J.D. Stacy. Dave said, I've been racing on the Grand National Circuit since 1967. And I would help any driver in the same situation. And I would expect them to help me. Jim Stacy never told me that Richmond and I were teammates. If that is what he wanted, he should have said so and explained exactly what he wanted to both of us. I'm disappointed at losing the sponsorship, but I feel all of us drivers are in this thing together. If we don't help each other out and act as gentlemen, what have we got? Well, Dave is exactly right about J.D. Stacy. If he wanted Dave and Tim to be teammates, why did he not explain that? And how was Dave to know otherwise? Back then, J.D. Stacy's name was everywhere. There was on at least seven cars at one point. Are they all your teammates? How is Dave to know unless he's told? I'm siding with him on this one. As for Winston Cup director Dick Beatty on whether or not what Dave did was legal, he said... We're tired of hearing any complaints. <laughs> All right, Dick. <laughs> yeah. I guess that settles that. That makes a point, doesn't it? All right. So here we go about the skinny dipping. I want to hear this. You had this to say about racing in Southern California in your column. Where you get pinto beans and cornbread back home, you get chili and tacos in California. Where you swim buck naked in the creek in Carolina, you lounge in a hot tub in Anaheim. You can get drunk on white lightning in Wilkes County, but in San Francisco, it's white wine. Buck naked in a creek. Steve, I ain't even going to go there. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, Rick. I was just pointing out the stereotypes of both sections of the country. That's all. No, I haven't swum buck naked in the creek. In his column. Gene Granger ripped into, of all people, Buddy Baker. And this is what Gene wrote. Let's set the record straight. Buddy Baker did not quit the Hoss Ellington Uno team on the spur of the moment. If his case had gone before a jury, he would have been found guilty of a premeditated change of cockpits. I listened to his song and dance about the team being snake bit, that it was time for him to move on in the best interest of the team. And I realized his depression was not genuine at the time, but I truthfully did not know that he already had a deal with Harry Rainier. Baker has always been a great actor. Had the movies or television been his act, he would own a barrel of Oscars. He put on an award-winning performance from a private automobile while I was in the rain and mud following his departure from the Pocono race. However, his reasons for resigning were not bought then or now. Well, all right, Gene, what well, did you really think, bud? <laughs> that's making a point, isn't it? Gene <laughs> never was settled when it comes to making his point. But I'll tell you one thing. You better be careful because you don't want to make Buddy Baker mad. No. There's a difference between being subtle and using a sledgehammer. <laughs> Buddy needs only his fish, no sledgehammer. 
Gene came in with a whole hardware store. Absolutely. <laughs> and honestly, do you have any memory of Buddy's reaction to Gene's column? I mean, Buddy was known as the gentle giant, but a man can only take so much. Well, the reaction that Buddy had most of the time, when he didn't like what you wrote, he didn't come at you with his fists. He came at you with silence. He would look at you in a cold stare and walk away. And man, that does hurt when Buddy Baker feels that way about you. Turns his back on you and walks away. That's what he did. Man, that gave me a chill down my back. I can't imagine <laughs> what it was like for G. <laughs> Tom Higgins had a news story in this issue about talks that were underway for the France family to purchase Darlington Raceway after Bruton Smith had apparently been outbid and rumors that Warner Hodgden was also interested in the facility. The war between the Francis, NASCAR and Bruton and Bob Bear and Roger Penske in the late 1990s, all that is pretty well documented. But I did not realize that it had been going on that far back to the early 1980s. It went that far back because NASCAR knew that Darlington was in trouble, both financially and the condition of the track. NASCAR was not about to let Bruton have that track. Now, they had a rivalry that far back. And there's more to it, Rick. Bruton said, I thought I was going to buy the place. Some time ago, I asked track president Barney Wallace what it would take to buy it. He gave me a figure, and that was my exact offer. I called down there before the Darlington board met Wednesday night and asked if I needed to be present when the bid was discussed. I was told that was not necessary. I called back later to see how things came out, and I was told another bid had been approved. I will not raise my bid. Honestly, I feel my offer was more than it's worth. They're lucky to get a higher offer. Since I didn't buy the track, I'm glad the Francis did. It'll be good for racing. According to Pappy's story, the Francis kicked into gear when rumors spread that Warner Hodgson was interested in buying Darlington. What was their concern with Warner in particular? Warner was getting a little bit overextended financially. He was supporting teams. He was supporting races. He was supporting race tracks. NASCAR great concern that Warner would not be able to keep up with what it needed to buy Darlington, especially if he was going to have all these other properties and entities. They were afraid that he would not be able to keep up with Darlington. That's why they intensified their bidding to the folks at Darlington to buy the track. NASCAR didn't really care for Bruton Smith. And it was very leery of Warner Hodgson. That played into its hands when it came to making the bid. Was it a deal where they had one Bruton to worry about and they didn't want to? <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. There was also a feature in this issue on Ray Mock Racing Enterprises owners, Butch Mock and Bob Rahilly, who had just moved to the Charlotte area from their native Miami, Florida. And in the early 1980s, South Florida and Miami they were pretty much synonymous with the illicit drug trade. And since Butch and Bob were from Miami, there were some who considered them pretty much guilty by association. Butch said it was totally absurd when you think about it. We didn't move there to make money. We were born there. And Steve, here's how serious the rumors were. Butch and Bob had agreed with Warner Hodgden on a three-year sponsorship in November 1981 while in Riverside for the season finale. But then Butch said during the race, three people came to Warner 
and said that Raymock was involved in dirty money. And Warner evidently told them, I think you guys are great, but I can't take the chance. That's when Bob and I figured we were damned if we did and damned if we didn't. That was a major setback, and it severely damaged our egos. Now, Butch concluded, it never seriously crossed our minds to do it, and I never physically saw any of it. As far as I'm concerned, it's speculation. Whether they do or don't traffic drugs is their business. Most of the people involved were indicted, and Bob and I are still here. That should answer any questions. I have another angle to all of this. For a time, Gary Ballou drove for Rayma. Now, don't need to say anything more about Gary Ballou, his driving career, and his career otherwise, other than to say that he, too, was associated, whether rightly or wrongly, with the drug trade. Now, him as Raymock's driver, well, people can put two and two together and get four, or so they think. I firmly believe that Butch and Bob in no way were affiliated with the drug running that came out of Miami. It was a coincidence. And any concerns that Warner might have had about Butch and Bob, about Ray Mock, they evidently got cleared up pretty quick because this was June 1982. And in 1983, who sponsored Butch and Bob at Raymock with Neil Bonnet as their driver? Well, obviously, Hodgson must have been convinced that Butch and Bob were not the shady characters everybody thought they were. And they weren't. Actions speak louder than rumors. And True. Warner Hodgson sponsored that team, gave them their first major successes in the sport. And so, yeah, any concerns that Warner had were taken care of, evidently. Finally, Die Guard Racing was started by Bill Gardner and a fellow by the name of Mike D. Prospero in 1972. But in November 1983, Mike's sports car hit a pickup truck at high speed, and Mike wound up in a coma for five weeks. And Mike said in this story, I couldn't walk. I couldn't talk. I couldn't do anything. And worst of all, I felt I'd never be able to do anything again. And again, that accident was in 1973. And afterward, the first race that Mike was able to attend was the 1982 Daytona 500, which was won by Bobby Allison, Die Guard Racing, and Gary Nelson's missing bumper. (laughs) 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 Mike said, I can't say enough good things about Bill. He held my position open for seven years. While he built the team into a champion, he never forgot about me, and I am forever grateful. Well, Mike's name was the Dive, the D-I part of Die Guard. I never met the man, Rick, as long as we all knew what Die Guard was about, and we knew it was him and what he had been through physically. I never had a chance to meet him. Another long-since forgotten name, living once again, in the pages of Saint. You might know me as L.W. Wright. The only place you can hear from me and the truth about me is from the Scene Vault podcast. Hello, Scene Vault fans. This is Brian from Speedway Screens. And if you're enough of a NASCAR historian to be listening to this podcast, there's a good chance a piece of the past you've been on the hunt for is in my shop. 
I'm constantly on the hunt for apparel and collectibles from all genres and eras of motorsports. So whether it be cup cars, dirt modifieds, dragsters, or monster trucks, I've probably got something for you. Check out my inventory at speedwaytsj.etsy.com and be sure to follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Speedway Screens for the newest items as soon as they drop and for a peek at what I keep from my own collection. As a special thank you to listeners of this show, just enter scene at checkout for 10% off. Speedwaytsj.etsy.com. That's speedwaytsj.etsy.com. This podcast has been brought to our listeners by Las Vegas Motor Speedway, America's racing show place. A couple of weeks ago, Leslie Jackson suggested that we do a 1998 Daytona 500 watch-along commentary track, whatever you want to call it. And now Leslie wants to know, if Jeff Gordon had risen to cup with Bill Davis, what do each of you think would have been the domino effects? Well, if the question is, do I think that Bill Davis Racing would have become another Hendrick Motorsports? No, I don't. I mean, the parts and pieces were already there at Hendrick Motorsports before Jeff came along. They had had a lot of success. They had won the Daytona 500 with Jeff and Daryl. They had won all those races with Tim Richmond. So they had had a lot of success. But I believe that Jeff and Ray Everham were just the final pieces of a huge puzzle that Rick had been building for several years by that time. And Bill's deal was only in its second or third year at the Bush Series level. And to attempt moving to the Winston Cup level with a talent like Jeff Gordon, I've got to think that the results would have been pretty much the same as they were with Bobby Labonte. Now, Bobby had some success, but he certainly didn't have the success of Jeff Gordon and Hendrick Motorsports. But the question then becomes, what would have happened with Jeff in the long run? absolutely think that Jeff would have went on to become a NASCAR Hall of Famer, just like Bobby Labonte did. He might not have found that level of success with Bill, but Rick Hendrick, Joe Gibbs, maybe even Roush Racing, they would have made him an offer that he couldn't refuse. If he went into cup racing with Bill Davis, they would not be at the level of their competition. No doubt about it. And I think that competition, sooner or later, would have lured Jeff away from Bill Davis. I think that in the long run, Jeff Gordon would have been a Hall of Famer. Bobby Labonte would have been a Hall of Famer. Maybe not with the same organizations that they wound up with. Now, I'm glad you said that because you're right about that. But I believe that they both would have wound up as NASCAR Hall of Famers. Listeners, if you have any questions or comments for me and or Steve, email me at Rick at thescenevault.com or tweet us using the hashtag AskScenevault. Gene's going to get Otis. Oh, okay. Otis is going to be happy. No, he's not. He's at daycare. That jerk doesn't even look back when we drop him off. <laughs> he likes it over there, huh? <laughs>